Welcome to Full Cast and Crew, a podcast where Jason and Chris take a film and come at it from multiple angles, creating a scaled down 360 degree model of understanding so thorough and so chock full of insight that you need never actually watch this or any other movie ever again. This week, we ask you to cast your mind back to the fall of 2018. Kofifi could still be used as a punchline, we thought Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton got along, and the first episode of Full Cast and Crew had only just been released. At that time, we asked you to cast your mind back to 1987, as we recorded an episode about Elaine May's Ishtar, a notorious and storied bomb which I happen to love. But the discussion was so hot that they begged us, begged us, not to release it. How times have changed. Full Cast and Crew has launched and quickly became iTunes' most downloaded podcast in Jason's household. And, more to the point, now we have an insurance carrier with some guts. And also some hormone imbalance that I guess affects their ability to assess risk or whatever. But that has nothing to do with the choice to release this. No, that has more to do with my computer crapping out and losing our last recording. So, without further ado, we give to you the Full Cast and Crew discussion of Ishtar. That's good. Yeah? That's good. I like it. It makes me mournful for war games. Yeah. It bothers me more now than it did when you first told me. Oh, great. Shouldn't have mentioned it. Well, Chris, it's a special day for you. I've been trying to play my cards close to my chest. You wrought this day. It's you. I mean, who is responsible I for the fact. I was not the one who was suggesting it. That's not true. What? We I can have go back documentary. You can check the record. There will be many times where you have referenced sure. your fondness, your appreciation, your yes. respect, your admiration yes. Yes. for this film. Yes. Ishtar. Just comes up. I have a larger concept that this film reminds me of. Would you like to hear what it is? Sure. I'm reminded of the larger concept of why we enjoy stories about when things go wrong. Why are stories about failure fascinating for us to read? Yeah. So, for example, this may be a genre in Hollywood. It's certainly one that I enjoy reading about. I enjoy watching documentaries about. We've talked before about these movies, whether they're Lost in La Mancha or Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. These epic, tragic accounts of great intentions dashed on the rocks of whatever rocky coastline ruined everybody's hopes and dreams. Why do we like that so much? I mean, if you enjoy them as much as I do. Some people enjoy these things because they like to watch other people fail. That's not how and why I enjoy them at all. Yeah. I like them, but I want to know, A, do you like things like that in general as well? Yes, I'm I'm interested in it, right? Like you said, not from schadenfreude, yes. but from appreciating the ambition of somebody on a quixotic quest and when that quest is not successful, mm-hmm. it gives it an element of pathos or tragedy. And I think you learn more about yourself and others mm-hmm. in moments of failure than perhaps you do in moments of great success. Because when you're having a great success, you either fall prey to the very human belief that you yourself are the reason behind your great success of course I did this thing and it worked out great. That's just what I hoped would happen. And when you're in that space, you're unaware of all the multitude of things that probably had as much, if not more to do with your success than you yourself did. When you're in a failure, when you're in something that's going colossally wrong, everyone's revealed how we handle adversity in the moment. I think that's, to me, why these stories are so fascinating. Yes, I think that is well put. 
Thank you. For the listener who might not have picked up on it, this is Full Cast and Crew, uh, a podcast where we take a film and go down the rabbit hole of its IMDb Full Cast and Crew page, looking for strange quotes, even stranger stories, and uh, often digress, though this week, because we are talking about 1987's Ishtar, Elaine May's last directorial effort, <laughs> uh, I can't imagine that there's going to be too much room for digression because this film, there's a lot to say about it. Um, well, Chris, what do you think about this film? Uh, well, Jason, as, as you pointed out, uh, the reason we're talking about it is because this is a film that I have always loved. I'm one of the few people that had seen it on opening weekend. Decided to go to a movie, did not know anything about it, went in, saw this movie, nearly got into a car accident on the way. Some would and, argue that might have been a more productive way to spend an evening, but okay, go ahead. Yep. And um, I enjoyed it very, very much. As a uh, child? Yeah. How old were you? I guess it would have been 12, maybe 13. I mean, I'm not going to say that this film does not d unravel in a manner that would perhaps appeal to the 12 or 13-year-old mindset more than the adults. Another very close friend of mine also happened to have seen it and also loved it. So that was something that we share, rather like Chuck and Lyle. You remember this in a theater yeah. and enjoying it, yeah, laughing. And seeing it a few times since and it's, always enjoying it. But it's been, I, I don't, I think the last time I saw it was five, six years ago. So I, I did go in. So you unknowing, unironically appreciate and enjoy this film. Well, what I was going to say is that, you know, I certainly, as a kid, there was no sense of irony to it. As I got older and the uh, legend around uh, mm -hmm. this movie was sort of built up, mm -hmm. there was part of me that simply wanted to buck that. Uh, of course. And so it's been a few years since I had seen it. Mm -hmm. So I, I was a little, I had a little bit of trepidation because... Because of because you, know, you know me, <laughs> yeah, there is that, uh, and because I was like, gosh, gosh, it's it's been a while, and how much of this has to do with my personal associations with it, with wanting to be a little you want bit to go the other way, that, you know, how much of it now that I'm now that I'm an adult, mm. ish, <laughs> ish, tar, okay, uh, you know, would I be able to look at it and be able to pick apart? And what I watched was the director's cut which I think is the only time I've ever heard of a director's cut that's actually shorter than the theatrical cut. <laughs> Uh, it's about two minutes shorter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually did notice missing pieces. Like story, plot, characterization. No, no, no. Just sort of like the, a lot of scenes of were, were scene a bit shorter. So like I said, I did watch it a little bit worried. and uh, But you came through flying colors. Just loved it as much as you always did. More so. More so. This movie is perfect. Chris. There is not an ounce Chris, of fat. That's why even those two. Me. Uh, no freaking You're trolling way. me. I loved this. Chris. From the performances of the two leads, the, the premise of it, the, the comedic elements of it. I texted my friend Doug, who's the guy I was referring to before, like as I was starting it, rewatching a star, the first 10 minutes are the funniest thing ever put to film. You're 10 joking. minutes later, I, I texted him again saying like, okay, 15 minutes, 25 minutes. This movie, I loved it. I was cackling like a loon. I found it so funny. And as an adult, I was looking at it and trying to think like, okay, what is the meaning there that made Elaine may want to tell this story? And I found it profoundly moving in ways that I did not expect. And besides it being incredibly funny, it really moves and tells a complicated story and one that is is not often told. I think this movie is unjustly maligned. And Jason, I I, I feel almost like a cult deprogrammer here. That I have I think you've been swayed by people like Jeff, who is telling you 
He was poisoning your mind. I, I, and, I'm not. Po- and, I go into every film with an open Bruce mind, Chris. Bruce Putnam. You know that me. That Chariots of Fire making. You mean David Putnam. David Putnam. David Putnam, that Chariots of Fire. Yeah, he made Chariots. What does he know? He only made Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Yeah. Exa- which is nowhere near as funny as this. <laughs> well, the soundtrack can. <laughs> <laughs> I do know you have strong Chris, feelings about the soundtrack. And you, this is an unironic. This is an unironic. Non- yes. Now, you know me. I respect and admire anyone who takes a contrary position to conventional wisdom. Yes. Almost just for the sake of doing it. I yes. completely respect that. I honor it. I do it yes. myself. I would be the first person to sit down and watch Ishtar, as I did last night, with the unavoidable expectation that you're going to watch one of the greatest bombs in the history of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I'd be the first person to sit down and watch this movie and say to you today, it's misunderstood. It's a masterpiece. These two lead actors- Like a lot of people do say, including Quentin Tarantino. I'm not taking this bait right now. (laughs) These two lead actors are charming and playing a version of their usual selves that we don't get to see. The comic timing, the script, the control, the blah, 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 it all makes sense. I'd be the first person to do that if any of that happened to be true. However, Chris- I'm going to read you a couple of quotes here. Ishtar is a truly dreadful film, a lifeless, massive, lumbering exercise in failed comedy. Roger Ebert. He's wrong. One of the best joys that I had doing some research about this film, did I learn a lot about Richard Brody of The New Yorker? Richard Brody, if you're out there listening to this, man, did I learn a lot about you reading the insane drivel you wrote about this film. Whoa. Richard Brody recently, in the last year or so, wrote of this movie, Ishtar, it's a wrongly maligned masterwork. Yeah. And then went on to say, there's a level of invention, a depth of reflection, and a tangle of emotions in Ishtar, which are reached by few films and few filmmakers. Which on its own, Chris, is a statement of almost colossal, just obfuscatory, willful blindness that I can't even, I can't even conceive of anything being said about any other film in the history of cinema that is more wrong than what I just read. I mean, it's a disaster from start to finish in every aspect of filmmaking, Chris. The, the, the opening scenes, like, who are these guys? What are they doing? Why are they They are implausible. They are untalented, which is, I guess, part of the point. But the idea that two guys like this live in New York City and somehow make a living being the untalented songwriter wannabes that they are, Uh it's a false premise. It's like, it doesn't even, if if you want to make a funny movie about sending two guys to a Middle Eastern country who get embroiled in a political situation, go and do that. There's plenty of ways to do that. But if you want to have Dumb and Dumber, you know, let's cast some actors that can do that dumb and dumber, like two idiots sent abroad. Great. However, when you read about this movie, everything starts from the flawed way in which it was set in motion. And this movie is actually a story about what happens when fear makes decisions. No, I would say that your analysis is the is the flawed premise. I think the idea of two not particularly talented dreamers who want to express themselves. Sounds familiar. In, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Maybe that's, that's why, why it, it, maybe that's why you love it, and I, I, I have some self awareness that maybe you don't have, Chris. 
<laughs> you know, it, trust me, I am very conscious of, of all of that. But that, to me, is not unrealistic. You know, if you think in 1987, what it would cost to live in New York is nothing. You know, we talked about this when talking about life. Still Lightsaber. more than these guys would make having no visible means of support. What do you mean no visible means of support? We saw a little bit about the lives, you know, Lyle, Lyle Rogers, played by Warren Beatty, is an ice cream man. He had also mm. come from, I, I forget where. The Midwest. I thought it was more, se- but yes, let's say the Midwest with it, with his wife. So presumably there was some amount of savings because this was like, this is my one mm-hmm. chance to change my life and Chris, to be the kind of person I want to be. Can, can we not so, dude, get into a literal been- defense of whether the movie makes sense? I mean, you can acknowledge that you like it, but you can't defend it on the merits of character, story, assembly. Because I, no, I, I do want to, you, you, I think the, your, the premise that you started with, what is unrealistic about them? I, I, nothing to my mind. Like I said, they seem, you know, yes, there's a thing that people talk about in improv about playing at the top of your intelligence. And I do understand that these guys are not necessarily, these are intelligent men, accomplished actors who both Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty are playing people with less talent than themselves. But I think. Which is a reverse they, conceit. I read a thing. Someone said, that can work, what you're talking about, where you're subverting the audience's expectation of seeing an actor a given way. However, there is also, and I would argue this is a really good case of it, when you have these two stars trying to play losers, it's it's conceit. It's. But I, I do understand what you're saying, and I do think there's a distinction between, between like you said, uh, Why are Warren we even Beatty. spending time talking about this movie? This is part of the reason why I love it, because I, I do find them moving. I stopped watching after 45 minutes, by the way, too. So I don't know if that's going to impede I mean, the conversation you, you missed at out. all. I, I, no, I didn't I miss out. So. I don't, yes. I'm pretty sure. I, I mean, you, it was, it was, I, I there think, was a camel. It was bumping into people. You and Lyle walk out of town, walk southeast. Southeast. In a couple of hours, you'll run into the Harridan Oasis. Harridan Oasis. Uh, how do we know? You'll, you'll, you'll know it. You can't miss it. We'll pick you up there. Mm-hmm. Move the camel. Move the camel. The camel. Move, move the camel. Move the camel. Where? Anywhere. He's on my foot. Oh. <sighs> Sorry. What the hell's the matter with that camel? Is he blind? Yeah. That, that was, and Charles Grodin, that was the best, that was even better than his performance in Midnight Run. Oh my just, God, I, you can't say that. Dustin Hart, Chris, of course tro- this is all a setup. No, this, this is, is a setup. And you don't actually think that. I will, here's, Chris, here's another, like, this is camera? what I'm getting at. That with these two, these Someone's two Someone's gonna come bursting out of a room here. Warren Beatty is subverting his own image as the ladies' man and vice versa with I, Dustin Hoffman. Like, there's that, the, that reversal. And I do think that they're both playing people who are less talented themselves, which is, I think, just a different kind of reversal. But I do not think that they are doing it in a mocking way. No, they're doing it in an egocentric way. I don't— They're doing me, it, look at me, I'm Warren Beatty, I'm playing bumbling and not, uh, not handsome and not charming. No, while I have my me, current no. girlfriend with me in the movie. I think, I think both gross, of them— no, both. Way. Well, you know, it was a different time. And uh, you know what? Props. And hey, she was was great. to Elaine May. I'm reminded of the scene, is it in Crimes and Misdemeanors, when Woody Allen is doing the documentary about the Alan Alda character, and he he has the screening, and it's Alan Alda is yelling, and then he intercuts it with Mussolini. Uh Is that that Crimes and Misdemeanors? I think so. Hannah and her sister. I think it's Crimes and Misdemeanors. Anyway, as you know, in the making of the movie, Isabel Ajani was Warren Beatty's girlfriend. Right. She spends the entire movie wrapped in a jabella with only her face partially visible, which I thought was sort of a, I thought that was kind of a clever move by Elaine May's part to sort of have her way. Because apparently those two did not get along. Isabel Ajani is a great actress in many other things. One 
almost every film award there is to win over the course of her career. This is not a performance that has any use for her talents or abilities. No, I don't know. Again, I disagree. I mean, I still want to talk about how I think that both Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman see in these characters what they might have been had they not been lucky enough to either be born with the talent or just what luck is. That they could identify with these people by saying, like, if things had gone slightly differently, I could have been them. That's why, to me, it does not feel, as you would put it, that they're they're dumbing it down or anything um, egotistical about it. It's egotistical to say, if I didn't have the great talent that I have, I could be a schlemiel like this schmuck. Well, you know, that's what they're, t- they're talking down. Whether it's that to they, I don't have the, I don't. It doesn't feel to me like they're talking down because they're identifying that these people's hunger and desire and their real partnership. And again, this is one of the things that I love about this film. It's a film about friendship, where the two of them, their friendship is tested, but they still are there for each other. Ultimately, I think that the potential suicide <laughs> oh. scene of Hawk is. Did I don't you even see? Know that? What you're ta- oh, and he's on the side of the when building. He's on the ledge. Listen, don't call the police. If this gets into the newspapers, a scandal will ruin me in show business. You got it. I mean it. No, I won't call the police. Lyle. I won't call the police. <laughs> I'm finally on the ledge. I'm finally on the edge of my life. When the tears won't even come, when the pain is so big, I'm finally on the edge of my life. Mr. Clark? Take it easy, Mr. Clark. Damn it! Take it easy, take it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. How you doing, Mr. Clark? Come on in, Mr. Clark. Make your phone call in here. Don't you think Daddy doesn't feel blue and I don't feel blue sometimes? But I know that tomorrow is another day. And the sun will come out tomorrow? Bet your bottom dollar it's tomorrow. Wait and see. Hold it, pal. Who are you? I'm uh, Lyle Rogers. I'm his best friend. Mr. Rogers, have you any idea how lucky this boy is? He didn't want to live with us in Queens. Give me a hand. Give me a hand. Give me a hand. Hold on, Hawk. I'm coming. Don't come any closer, Lyle, and don't call me Hawk. I told you not to tell anyone. I know, but I was scared I couldn't get here on time. Don't be mad at me, Chuck. Charles. It's Rabbi Pierce, Charles. Oh, my God, Rabbi Pierce is here. You're, jo- you're joking with me. Right I'm now. not. I love that scene I don't believe so, you, Chris. So much. You're kidding I, you know, right in now. Some ways, this has got to be the most boring because I was like, that's great. The scene where the, no, <laughs> the you're, two of them are coming out of doing the restaurant this and the multiple me. different types of you're spies fuck with me. are, you know, going back and forth and even <laughs> You're not being genuine right now. I, I, am being, I know you. I have known you for years. I am being so you're genuine. Not. You're yes. not. You're taking a position that you know is contrary and you are, you've decided to defend it that against is. All evidence no. and information. What evidence? What information? That the movie's a horrific train wreck of know. epic not proportions. To whoever you, not according to- um, Richard Brody? Richard Brody. Or uh, if I can quote- So you think that it's just a- If I can quote from the, the Village Voice, and I thought this was a- uh, Elaine May's droll film is the most adroit political satire to emerge from Hollywood during the Iran-Contra stupefaction of Reagan's second term and all too aware of its existential pathos. The image of two clowns, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, crawling around the Sahara in the company of a blind camel is worthy of Beckett. I loved the stuff in it. That, I'd forgotten how funny them with the camel Sorry, that was the sound of my forehead like, hitting the microphone in disbelief. Come on now. Fix. Get up. Come on, Move. idiot. Who you want to get killed? Who's trying to save your Move. ass? Move. Get out. Get out. Get it, Chuck. They're going to come back and Chuck. kill us. Come on. That Move. big, dumb, stupid.
stupid ass camel, he'd rather, he'd rather just sit there than move when you ask him. He'd rather get yeah. shot. Actually, I kind of admire that. Me too. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how the film came to be, because I think that's the most effective means of making the argument that I'm making for this movie. So the movie came about because Warren Beatty felt he owed Elaine May one. Yeah. Elaine May had worked as an uncredited script doctor on Reds and on Heaven Can Wait. And Warren Beatty was aware of her incredible contribution to the success of both films. Yes. Warren Beatty found himself in a position of power. Guy McElwain, who I think used to be Beatty's agent, was the executive in charge of Columbia Pictures at the time. And Warren felt Elaine's previous directorial efforts had not had the support of a strong producer and the support of a strong studio behind her. He felt she was capable of great things, and he wanted to do something good. He wanted to bring her in and say, I am Warren Beatty. I will be the producer. Guy McElwain, this is a project that I will lend my stardom to. Right. I think we can get Dustin to be involved. Elaine May is going to direct. It's going to be great. In the sort of modern parlance, like he was using the privilege that yes. he had developed over four, a string of mm-hmm. four hits where he had been producer and actor. And director. Well, not with uh, Shampoo, which I think well, is Well, no, in- he directed Reds. That's- the most recent. What, but I just meant that there was, he was definitely was at a high point yeah. after a bunch of stuff. And he was using that. He's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to spend this political capital yes. for you because yeah. I think you're a great talent. And so he goes in and Guy McElwain, importantly, reads the script that Elaine May has written and says to himself, I don't see it. I, okay. <laughs> now this is where, remember what I said before, how this all starts when fear makes a decision. One of the most important things here He read the script and it didn't work as a movie on paper, even with Warren Beatty, even with Dustin Hoffman. However, and I quote, McElwain was also afraid the property could be a hit for another studio if Columbia passed, end quote. Beatty had a solid record of commercial success in the four movies as a producer and star. So it wasn't that he saw this as a good movie. It's that he was afraid it would work for someone else. Mm -hmm. This is the oldest story in Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. After I dumped out of this movie about 45 minutes in, I'd always read about Elaine May. I've seen some of the iconic Nichols and May stuff. I had never seen any of the movies that she directed. Uh Uh-huh. So as I texted you last night, I I went and looked a little bit at A New Leaf, which was great and really funny and really possessed comic flair and a point of view and comedy on all levels, from effortless tossed-off comedy to visual comedy to modulated acting from herself, because she stars in the movie opposite Walter Matthau. It was great. It was, it was a gem that I was happy to be watching. And I went and watched it because I was sort of like, wow, we're living in a time where a lot of emperors don't have clothes. And so I sometimes feel like there are certain people in the showbiz edifice that you're like, oh my God, this is a genius. Mm-hmm. You got to love, this person's work is genius. So important. And then you kind of jump in and you watch some of it and you're kind of like, ah, I don't really get it. What is it that people were seeing? It, it is something that was there that I understand that Warren Beatty was protective of and wanted to create an opportunity for. Right. And even Dustin Hoffman. Let's take him. He reads the script. And what does he do? He hesitates. Well, he says no. Eh, that's a bargaining position. He says no, too, because he didn't see it either. And I think he gave voice to this in a more recent interview. There's a really great excerpt from Peter Biskin's book about Warren Beatty that has this whole story, and it's a really good story. And Dustin often gives a lot of off-the-cuff quotes that are pretty useful in our assessment of the film. And he says something like, better to fail in pursuit of something different and new than to succeed in doing the same old, same old. And that's how he eventually talked himself into going forward on this journey. Right. 
that and being paid. He and Beatty were both paid, I think, $5.25 million. And I think Elaine May was too, as a director. And then Beatty got paid another $500,000 to be the producer. So before they even rolled one frame of film, they were $15.5 million in the hole. I do believe both of them did offer to defer they did. their They pay. did offer to defer because politically they knew it would be unseemly. Of course, you seem to place a lot of emphasis on the fact that they offered to do that and no emphasis on the fact that they were quite happy to take the money and not insist on that. So what? I rest my case. Chris, Chris Kapiniak, quote unquote, so what? What? I'm just saying what's great about Ishtar as a instructive piece of storytelling about how things go wrong on an epic 50, 60 million dollar production with the biggest movie stars in the world. When you watch the movie, you're naturally attracted to that story because it's probably synonymous with box office failure, even though it's having a very 2018, let's pretend it's good moment. Well, uh, first of all, that that reassessment has been going on for at least 10 years. Okay, uh, fine. Without just me. But again, you're also focusing on... The only interesting thing is the backstory, Chris. The movie's terrible. It's movie, not a watchable movie. It's no, it's not. It's an exceptional movie. It's not it is an exceptional incredibly movie. It's, funny. And it is, not like I said, it is funny. very moving. It's that, not like, moving. It's not moving. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's not moving. There's people in this world worse off than you. Poor people, uh, you sick people, people who haven't got anybody to go out on a ledge farm. Come on, give me your hand. Come on, the best part is that Dylan Baker is in a crowd scene in that, the nightclub. It, yes. That's the best part of the whole movie. Well, no, but that face was burned Why into my mind from 1987. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. So anyway, Guy McElwain talks himself out of fear moving forward with a movie where the script is not in shape, but they say, no problem. Fascinatingly, Columbia's parent company was Coca-Cola. And yes. Coca-Cola had money in Morocco that it couldn't repatriate to the United States. So the studio says... No, 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 no. Because I think Elaine May and the production designer were like, okay, we can we can shoot this yeah. in Nevada. We don't need to go to Morocco. We can shoot the desert scenes here in the United States. And that'll mm -hmm. save us a mm -hmm. tremendous amount of money. Columbia, Coca-Cola, no, no, no. Go to Morocco for 10 weeks and film on location in the Sahara Desert. So they filmed that part of the movie first, which the Morocco portion of the movie at least flows like a real movie. However, what came before which are the New York scenes, are great. I mean, they're incredibly funny. According to Biskin's book, uh -huh. a typical comedy would shoot about 30 hours worth of material mm -hmm. from which you would craft your 90-minute feature. Elaine May shot 108 hours of footage, three times the amount typical for a comedy, which when you see the finished product is amazing. I, didn't, I don't know if I watched the director's cut. I just streamed whatever was available on Amazon. You know, to me, this it's a tragedy that this movie flopped or was a failure. Whatever whatever term you want to use. That's, the audience is always right, Chris. I don't think that that's true. You know, it's like comedy. The audience votes by showing up or not. That's the purest form 
of audience interaction you can have. Look, I was entertained. There is, of it's course, a subjective, a subjective element of it, of course, mm, to talk about. Mm, and mm. I think what you're focusing on in the story, to me, is a lot less interesting than the actual shooting of it. Why did it, Elaine May shoot three times as much? Well, you know, that's the style of director that she was. And she was a person who kind of knew this was an important opportunity that she had and was nervous. That caused tempers to fray with Warren Beatty, with Dustin Hoffman. These people were coming out, you, you know, I don't think they were defined by fear so much as good intentions that then fear crept in. And maybe those difficulties, like, yes, to me, it is fascinating to read about that stuff, but I don't think that that reflects on what actually did show up. Because just to fast forward towards the end of the story, despite all of the anger and rancor between Warren Beatty and Elaine May, between Elaine May and David Putnam, David you Putnam. Know, David Putnam. You know, everybody was angry at everybody else. One thing that jumped out when I was reading something about it was ultimately, after all of this wrangling and who was going to get final cut and this and that, everybody was like, yeah, this cut is good. Everybody was happy with the cut. I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, so the idea of bad press and leaked this or that or, or whether this became the sacrificial lamb for the excesses of Hollywood, either in the eyes of David Putnam or in the eyes of the press, all of that is interesting to read about after the fact, but I went into it not knowing any of those things. You mean when you were 12 or 13? Or when I was time? 12 and 13, okay. and even, even this time, knowing a lot of that. Now, how do you shake off your own associations, whether you can or not? I, I don't know if it was just goodwill that makes me look at this and was howling with laughter. This must be the 10th, 12th time that I had seen it. You've seen, you've seen Ishtar 12 times? Probably, Chris. yeah. <laughs> You are missing out and on so many better films that you could have. I can't think of You've a not one. seen this 12. You are totally fucking with me right now, and this is not true. <laughs> I'm, not. I'm calling an end to this. This is ridiculous. You've not seen Ishtar 12 times. You have now stretched the bounds of credibility. <laughs> you pushed it too far. I would be willing to believe that you'd seen the movie once or twice and enjoyed it when you were 12, but now you're insulting my intelligence and everyone else's intelligence. No, man. No, I, I must have seen it. Now, I'm going to tell you something, number of times. Chris. Yes, okay. please. Film, art, it's subjective. However, there are certain fundamental requirements. And when yes. you're watching a film, a studio film, a Hollywood film, right. it is reasonable to expect a certain level of professional execution from all the parties involved. We're also aware it's incredibly difficult to marshal a team of hundreds of people, artistic visions, studio interference, location yes. difficulties, all of these things can bring pressure to bear. And we're all aware, going back to my earlier point, success, when it happens, everyone thinks it's because of them. Failure, when it happens, everyone is trying to say it's because of someone Some, else. Yes. Coming in clean to this movie, not having read all the stuff that I subsequently read, which Except I only read after. Jeff said. In popular culture, it's the one movie that gets cited when you talk about sure. the biggest bombs in the history of Hollywood. You come in and you're, and you're watching the movie, and it's like, you just... It does not live up to a reasonable standard of professional execution, and it doesn't have enough other charms going for it to make up for that, which other films could. I'm not saying every studio film has to have this in order to be watchable, but Chris, I've got to have sensible characterization. I've got to have the ability to have scenes have meaning and, and to connect to each other in some unified whole. I have to have a story that I care about. I have to have laughs. It's a comedy. Well, let's, let's, and I'm not laughing one time in the entire movie. Well, one, you know, I, one, I pity you. Time. I truly, truly. There's not one <laughs> real laugh 
I, and you don't laugh either, Chris. I do. You don't. I do. You don't. I do. You don't. I you do. Don't. I do. You don't. You don't. <laughs> Let's talk about the first 45 minutes, which what you're saying about like there's no level of competence in this that like I, I don't know that I that I see it. Like if you break Chris, it come down to people. You can defend are, it, but you can't tell me it's good. You you can say you love it, but you can't sit here and say it's good. Well, or conversely, it's well made. you could say that you didn't enjoy it, but you can't tell no, me that it I was can't incompetent. Tell you. I can tell uh, you that it was incompetent. But I, can I, don't, tell you, I don't see it. Like, I don't know what. She never directed another movie again. So because what? the movie was re- so poorly received and the movie was so bad and the movie cost so much money. Sure. All of those. It cost over $60 million to make this movie. It was $51 million and then $20 million for marketing. Adjusted for inflation. Well, at the, at today the dollar. Today, today dollars. Well, that I can't 75 do. 75 in today. Well, listen, we all know that neither okay. of our math skills are up to par. But to me, that's that's tragic uh, that, that she, you know, that she was hurt, was spurned, or whatever, you know, all of that stuff. But that's not tragic. Not do a good job, and, you, and it's not tragic. I thought she did a great job. Like, again, I'm still... Wow. Everything that you're saying about- Too bad like, you weren't running no, a major Hollywood studio in 1988 yeah, well, after Coca-Cola sold Columbia Pictures as a result of this specific movie. Yeah, well, they wanted to focus on uh, the launch of New Coke. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> please go on, because it is a great story. I mean, It's a great story. All of the things that ha- they're happening while they're filming in the desert, um, including some of the most, what's the opposite of generous? Um, if you're being particularly willfully cruel in your anecdote yeah. memorance. Um, willfully cruel is probably pretty good. <laughs> the willfully- Malicious. Malicious. The malicious anecdotes shared by the production manager. This is the most hilarious thing. I took a picture wow. of this. I, first user review, uh, nine stars. I took a screenshot of this. If you Google Ishtar, this doesn't even come up. <laughs> the, 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 actual, the actual film does not even come up on Google. Look, man, like That's Chameleon incredible. Street, it's just too hot. The government does no, not no. want if you. If you Google Chameleon Street, that, that's the only thing that comes up. But it's kind of amazing that if you go, and you could do this at home, Google Ishtar, it'll come up as a little ad in the far right corner. But it doesn't actually come up as a listing. I'm not sure where I read this. Did you read about them trying to uh, find a camel? Yes, the blue-eyed camel the blue-eyed that they found camel. for $700 and then being, you know, a savvy uh, <laughs> location guy. Uh, we'll come back. You know, let's, we, can, we can do better than yeah. $700 for Turns a out rare blue-eyed camel. Blue-eyed camels are, are more rare than he thought, so he came back. But the owner had slaughtered and eaten the camel in the time that— Paul, Paul Silbert is the uh, production designer. Uh-huh. He has some hilarious quotes about the making of this movie. Although, to be fair to everyone else in the movie, someone else on the set says Paul Silbert and Elaine May really did not get along. So everything he says, you have to take with a grain of salt. He's the one that told the great anecdote of searching and searching and searching for just the right mounds Uh, of sand in the desert and saying that Elaine was overmatched in some of the sequences that they were required to shoot, including the battle sequence. They had this delicate thing where she didn't really know how to stage something like that. And Beatty, to his credit, was not just taking over, but many other people on the set were sort of looking at Warren Beatty and going like, you're going to like take this over and make this happen, right? And they just sort of let that kind of evolve. And part of that evolution was Paul Silbert would say, okay, I found the location. I found these perfect sand dunes. Right. And Elaine May said, no, 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 dunes. Who said anything about dunes? I want, I want a flat. flat. Yeah. And he had to go and get 20 bulldozers and move hundreds and hundreds of millions of tons of sand to, to create flatness. For a 2.5 square mile For a 2.5 square mile. Now, some people say that's an apocryphal story and didn't actually occur. But, you know, again, it's listen, better. It's a better listen, story. That, and look, I will say uh, Elaine May was right. 
that uh, the battle, who needs a battle scene? The battle scene did exactly what it needed to do. It was quick. Well, I mean, we in, don't a, want, in a movie like, where two guys battle. are inserted into a battle that's taking place in the Middle East, it's probably important that you have a pretty good battle scene. But it's, it's not about the battle. It's about- What is it about, Chris? Friendship, people who believe in themselves despite all evidence to the contrary. Two great quotes. Ego trumps logic in Hollywood, said about Ishtar. You could say that about anything. And Paul look, Williams. the same could have been said about Reds as well, but that happened to work out. I liked Reds. Great. But that also like went over budget, had all sorts of problems, sure. and people thought that- um, But it worked. Uh, it won a lot of award, it won Academy Awards. All is forgiven in success is but the that, point. But I guess that, that's the other thing and too. That's All second, is forgiven in success, but- Which this wasn't, so it doesn't get forgiven. We're not living in that moment now. And I don't oh, I think am. that it's- <laughs> It's too conspiratorial to think that, yes, when- a, So when, you're telling me we, this movie was crushed in some conspiratorial effort to undermine an actual work of genius and, and to repress it for some unstated nefarious purpose. Well, you know, other people, you know, Elaine May, for example, thought that David Putnam had a thing against it because it was David a very- David Putnam recognized the stink of failure coming from that it was an exceptionally uh, expensive and movie. And distanced but, himself from it. That's what movie executives do. He was gone five months later. So he had nothing to do with the success or failure of the movie. The movie had already been long set in motion. Before. Sure, but you know, as far as not promoting it as much as he could have, and the leaking of anecdotes, suppose. And again, this is what I'm getting from Elaine May. Oh, oh. That is a thing that happened. It was already famous for all the cost overruns and uh, for absolutely. the difficulties. Uh, by the time, and, and if the movie was any good, it would have survived those things. I don't know if that's because Reds had the true. similar, a similar backdrop of cost overruns. Heaven can wait. Uh, Heaven's Gate, right? These are, yeah, well, like, Heaven, Heaven's Gate is a good example of a movie that at the time and today still is held up as an example of ego and Hollywood run amok. However, when you watch the movie, it's it's a work of art. I think it's beautiful. I think it's great. But when you watch Heaven's Gate, it's obviously a work of art. That's a very different thing than what this is. Here's a quote. Paul Williams, great 70s, 80s guy, wrote the, uh, the intentionally yes. poor songs for- Warren Beatty and Dustin Can I tell Hoffman. you that I spent the night Which I will Every say, time I would go buy a good. used record store, I would go in looking for the soundtrack. It never got released. However- But it does say at the end of the credits, like yeah. it will be released on Warner Brothers. Well, did you read that Elaine May insisted that even though they would only use one or two lines of these intentionally bad songs, she insisted that Paul Williams write entire bad songs. Yeah. And that Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty learn and perform entire bad songs. Yeah. And then she would only use a little snippet of it. Paul Williams probably has the best quote, as Paul Williams has said of the movie business, just before Ishtar's release, quote, you must remember one thing about Hollywood. Even if Ishtar is a big bomb, Warren, Dustin, Elaine, and I will all work again, only next time at a higher fee. Now, that was true for everyone, except Elaine May. Except Elaine May. I think, unfairly so, probably because she was a female director. I think a male director can, has, and would get numerous opportunities again, even after a failure of this magnitude. Because she was a woman, I guarantee you, she did not get opportunities that a member of the boys club would be given a pass on. There's good intentions and there's good screenplays. You can't judge someone on their intentions. You have to judge them on the resultant work. And I know this is where Chris is going to jump in and say, yeah. And I, my, all 12 times I've seen, which is in probably one of the most <laughs> insane things I've ever heard, ever. What I was going to do was actually quote the movie. You've not seen this 12 when, times, Chris. When Lyle Real? says, oh, is that right? How would you see it 12 times? Where? It's not on TV. It was on Bravo a lot in the Bravo. early 90s. Yeah. 
Bravo, like the cable channel. channel. Cast your mind back to when Bravo was supposedly <laughs> the arts network. Oh. Which, you know, a lot of people, myself included, would laugh that this huge uh, bomb was on the arts network. Great quote about David Putnam from, of all places, People magazine. Placing David Putnam at the head of a studio was like making Jerry Falwell the mayor of San Francisco. I was listening to a discussion with Mike Nichols and Elaine May, where she was talking about that very thing, that he was coming in with this idea that Hollywood was wasteful and that all this money was spent and this and that. And he wanted to clean that up, according to her. And I understand she is hardly a disinterested party, but there was an element of that. She shot 108 hours of film for comedy. So David Putnam was right. But it was done. Look, the oldest battle in the world is suits versus the creatives. I understand. However, this is not the sand dune to die upon. (laughs) If I can even divorce myself from my love of this movie, it is difficult. But this idea of her shooting that much for what was meant to be a piece of commercial fluff. And, you know, we've talked a few times about like movies as art versus entertainment. I think you have often said like a piece of- It's all entertainment. It's all entertainment. Yet at the same time, something can be better, you know, but what is it that made her shoot that huge amount? And, you know, I haven't seen any of other, her other, uh, the things that she has directed. To me, what it sounded like from from reading it had more to do with, in some sense, a, a lack of confidence. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, Josh Trank yes. was the guy who directed Chronicle, this sort right. of low-budget, found-footage superhero thing. Then his second film, they gave him Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. this huge property. Marvel's yeah. oldest, let's say Stan Lee's first yeah. big superhero creation of Marvel, uh, something that Marvel has wanted to make a tentpole, and they dumped huge amounts of money on him and he broke under the pressure and made you know i I never saw it my understanding Mm -hmm. is that it's very bad i saw it 12 times i saw it 12 times so you must have liked it no i didn't (laughs) just kidding so but and i wonder if this gift but this story the story that you're telling me about fear and the the machinations of the producer versus this and that those are all interesting, but to me, the most interesting thing about it is, and the saddest thing is Warren Beatty saying, I would like to give you this gift. Yes. And this gift actually ends up hurting her. Not, and I don't just mean career-wise, but but in the moment of being like, this is too much. Because it's not just that he said, I'm going to go to back for you. You can make whatever you want. And she was making a comedy set in the United States, a smaller thing. Mm-hmm. This was- was It was an albatross her. coming through the office door. And, and that, everyone recognized that it as such, but they talked themselves into going forward. You know what's another example of that recently? Remember when HBO greenlit the Martin Scorsese Mick Jagger show for HBO? Oh, yes. That's a similar example to me where- I understand if you're the HBO executive and you have fucking Mick Jagger and Martin Scorsese in your office, what are you supposed to say? No. Yeah. I mean, you're you're going to talk yourself into doing it just to be a part of hanging around possibly something great. However, I think what's fascinating about these failures is the discerning no is as important as the yes. Now, when Warren Beatty came back from Morocco, another bizarro part of the story, Faye Vincent, who then became the baseball commissioner, was at the time, I believe, the head of the studio, right? Okay. He was uh, the Columbia chief executive officer. And Beatty told Faye Vincent when he came back from Morocco that Elaine May couldn't direct. And Faye Vincent said, okay, fire her. And Beatty said, I can't do that. And Vincent said, okay, I'll fire her. Beatty said, no, you can't do that. If you do that, Dustin Hoffman and I are going to leave the picture. Biskind, again, says, Beatty proposed that every scene be shot twice, his way and Elaine May's way, 
which effectively doubled the movie's cost. It's the New York stuff that was shot twice. It's not the whole film was shot twice. It was Correct. Just one. If, if that's even true. I mean, if it's even true that they had three edit rooms going, one with Dustin Hoffman, one with Warren Beatty, <laughs> one with Elaine May, each editing their own version of the movie, sounds a little too good to be true. However, you never know. I don't know why I've always been fascinated by like the machinations of the movie industry and how things get made and all of the competing interests. And then you add ego and celebrity on top of that. I, I like to be behind the scenes. And it sort of seems like when there's an epic disaster, that's when people start kind of telling their version of the story, either in a self-serving way, but also because these things take on a life of their own. A group of people set out with the best of intentions to entertain a lot of other people. Yeah. And it didn't work. I mean, it worked for you. It worked Elaine for May would I be can, thrilled to hear. I can name that four you, people. Who love, this movie. who love this movie. Are they all related to you? Uh, to, no, just one. One of my favorite quotes in the, the making of story of Ishtar, when Warren Beatty is telling someone about the origin story, he says, we were talking with Elaine and, you know, she was really fascinated by the Middle East. He, he kind of couches it in this as if the movie is going to somehow have something to say about the Middle East, which... Again, I stopped watching after 45 minutes. <laughs> pretty, sure, pretty sure there's no deep explication going on. But well, maybe I missed it, Chris. I, I think you did. I mean, you <laughs> I know. Think you did. Do they end up writing a, a song? They, they end up making the military back their live album. And they, <laughs> like the 87th Airborne is the, uh, is the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, by popular demand, Rogers and Clark. They wrote the music and the lyrics. It's great. Wow. It's such a good ending. No, Chris, no. Life okay. is too short to watch bad movies. <laughs> you no, spend 12 you times of your life watching this. I enjoyed it every and single time. I think the only times I didn't enjoy it was when I was trying to show it to somebody who I thought they might enjoy and it. And I can't ruin this for you. There's no way. No. So you have had times where you've shown it to other people and they're like, I got to go or they, like, yeah, they don't get good. it. Uh, yeah, they sort of don't get it, but they, but they kind of just try to change the subject and move on. I was contemplating Dustin Hoffman's career uh, in, in many of the free 45 minutes I had that I spent <laughs> watching this movie. I'm going to make a- So you didn't even see the whole gun running thing? Nope. Uh, so <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to make a loosely backed up sweeping- generalization right now. And I'm going to also declare a firm, Very on brand. I'm going to declare a firmly held unsupportable position. Yes. Dustin Hoffman has appeared in only two truly great films in his career. Do you know what they are? The Graduate. That's one of and them. And Ishtar. <laughs> no. No. No, no, no. The Graduate is correct. The only other truly great film that Dustin Hoffman has ever been in, ever, is All the President's Men. That's Which? it. He's been in a lot of what I would call, this is one of those arguments where there's no shame in being in what we're going to call the second tier here. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like there's the Beatles and however you want to do your rock and roll tier, there's no shame in not being the Beatles. There's no shame in not being whomever. So there's no shame in not being the graduate and not being all the president's men. For example, 
Marathon Man, Papillon, Midnight Cowboy, Rain Man. Those are all second tier of movies. They're not films that people are going to talk about in a hundred years time. Huh. They are curiosities of their time in the case of Midnight Cowboy. Have you seen that movie recently? I think about five years ago. Held up for you? Yeah. Yeah. Marathon Man? I love Marathon Man. Oh, that's- I love it. I love Scheider. We talked about Scheider. You know, there's one thing about that in particular, because I, and I think I mentioned it, like I particularly do think that genre pictures have sort of a higher hurdle to get over to be taken care taken seriously. But I also think that there is something that's, that's potentially kind of timeless, uh, timeless about them that can sort of capture something. You're right. I don't think Marathon Man has sort of stood the test of time. Like people don't talk about it. But it's still great. But it is still great if you catch it. And it is because, you know, what is the, um, I think when they do sort of transcend or jump, it has to do with what is the setting against which the suspense is happening. And I guess sort of Nazi hunting, they got him. Yeah, but also (laughs) even, I think also in the genre picture like that, there's some, since it's taking place in its own time and place in which it's being made, when we watch it now, we're watching, you know, a New York or a Washington DC that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So kind of like in the same way that when we were watching uh, Light Sleeper, for example, part of the joy of watching Light Sleeper now in 2018 is you're getting to see a New York that you experienced, but that doesn't exist anymore. What about Tootsie? Well, Tootsie- because Elaine I mean, it's a, it's also a, it's a great movie. did a punch up on that. I love Tootsie. Yeah. I think we've talked before about the genius of the cameo by, um, this is where my memory is. It so must have been great. Sydney, what's his name? Sydney Pollock. Sydney Pollock's cameo in the restaurant is so good. Yeah. But Elaine May is most known for contributing the Bill Murray scenes in Tootsie, yeah. which to me is one of the weaker parts of the movie. I, I always felt that is there kind of for no reason. I never, that doesn't really have anything to do with the central part of the story that we're going at. Makes you wonder, like, what is the important part of a story? Like, yeah. how much do you cut away to get to the thing you're doing? Until you then have like a boring thing where everybody right. just says exactly what they, and they move. Sure. Sometimes actually those parts that could be considered flab or don't seem related are the thing that gives gives the thing their their beauty. Yeah. Part of the joy of it does, if I, you know, it's, it's not just about him and his stories, but, you know, he's part of a community. So you have right. the Terry Gar character yes. who, so yes, she does have a plot function and you have, but she also is there because this is his life. It's giving more, but more see, around the life what, of what this, I love, this actor. What's great about the early scenes in Tootsie is what's not great to me about Ishtar and its early scenes of wannabe showbiz failure. The way Dustin Hoffman plays the scenes about him being a failed or struggling actor feels so true to life and feel probably really true to life even today. He inhabits that and is portrayed very realistically, the, the insults, the humiliations, the indignations. Ishtar, like for me, one of the epic failures in Ishtar is when you have movie stars of that caliber, they never can be something other than what they are. So Warren Beatty is not at all believable as a non-ladies man. And Dustin Hoffman is not at all believable as an irresistible ladies man. If you're like me and you like rabbit holes, I like self-contained worlds that have their own thing going on in them. Failure is a great self-contained world sometimes. And the stories of it, I love it. I feel like I've learned more in my own failures than, and in my successes. I've come to realize that. I didn't realize that entirely until going through a cycle like where you have a big success and then you have a period of failure and then you have some success again, to me, that's a very changing experience and you come to appreciate it a lot more. It's easier to see it, like you said, when you've come through the cycle. When you are still in that 
element of failure. And the only thing that you have is kind of your own belief in yourself. And if you're lucky enough, a partner who also Mm -hmm. trusts and believes in you and you're sort of doing it together. That's where that is is coming from. There's plucky and good and no one recognizes us yet, which is an interesting thing that I'm wanting to pay attention to. These two clowns, like Dumb and Dumber, it sets out two morons enter into the world. Okay, I get that too. This tries to be both. It tries to get me to think of these people as real people, but it doesn't give them any, it gives them an obviously demonstrable lack of any talent whatsoever. So they're deluded morons, but they're played by Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. And that's an, that's just insurmountable. It's an insurmountable problem for the screenplay. It's just, it's, you seem to find some charm in their bumbling ineptitude that I don't see at all. I guess you're able to turn off that it's Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty in a way that I guess I'm not able to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah. So from full cast and crew regarding Ishtar, one enthusiastic (laughs) thumbs up, one Middle. No, that's like not even a middle. <laughs> that's not even a middle. No, no. One undecided. It is a. It is a wholehearted <laughs> thumbs down. Avoid at all costs. Bullcast and crew is brought to you by two different guys on a bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two different guys on a bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy, delivered daily. I have a question for you before we jump into the additional elements. Do you have a rocking chair? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Because I was listening to our Clue episode, and it struck me, there's a a moment in the intro to the Clue episode, which will be out by the time anyone hears this, where you say something to the effect that you're sitting in your rocking chair and watching the movie. And I thought... Is he really putting the ball on the tee like that for me? <laughs> Can it be true? I love rocking chairs. They get very comfortable. Is it handed down generation handed to generation? Down. Like I, honestly, I don't know where it was the generation before. I know I had an uncle who passed I don't know, 15 years ago, and then it was apparently sitting in my parents' place for about a 10 or 13 of those years. And then I was like, hey, is this rocking chair always been here? Can I take it? And you've had it with you ever since. Yeah. Does it creak? It does creak a little. I actually have to repair it. To watch a movie while rocking, I'm, to, I'm already <laughs> nauseous. Like, that just seems like a lot of motion on the screen. It's a comfortable chair, even if you're not rocking. Hmm. You know, even if you're just sort of sitting there. Does it have cushions? It does, yeah. This Do you is... eat in the chair in front no, of the TV? Are, I mean, I eat popcorn. Are you more of a sinky? Oh, <laughs> as far as when I have meals? <laughs> yeah, I'm more of a sinky. Hey, buddy, sometimes I'll just eat directly on the toilet. You know, one stop <laughs> Sinky is still the greatest thing of all time. Or the worst. Yeah, depending on where you are in your life. Well, I think that the listeners want a photo of the rocking chair uh, to be put up on the podcast Facebook page. So please do that. Are we moving on to rants and raves? Let's do it. Would you like to go first? Sure. Uh, It's not a museum show, is it? It's it's not. (laughs) Though it might be baiting you in a different way. This rave is about, uh, I was lucky enough to see a screening of Francis Ford Coppola's <laughs> Apocalypse Now, The Final Cut at the Tribeca International oh, Film Festival. rub it in. Jason actually was the one who bought the tickets and was kind enough to- I actually was the one two. who had the whole idea to go. Yeah. I and said, buy hey, the tickets and we should tickets. go to this. Absolutely. And you were like, oh my God, yes. But unfortunately, he opted to see a documentary about penguins with his daughter. Did he make the right choice? 
You be the, you only be the judge. <laughs> only time will tell. Well, what had happened was, I do this all the time. I am a combination of incredibly organized and also incredibly, um, like- Dis- Disorganized. Disorganized, <laughs> yeah. The organized part of me notices this thing in my newsfeed that says at the Tribeca Film Festival, Francis freaking Coppola is going to be interviewed by a fucking film idol of mine, Steven Soderbergh, talking about, my God, oh my God, this movie that I would freak out to sit and watch yet another cut of, and then hear these two filmic gods discuss. Oh, hell yes, we're buying tickets and going, Chris. Then, some weeks later, I get another email from the PGA, which gives you access to screenings. Right. And they're like, Sunday, June 28th, come see a free show of the new Disney nature documentary, Penguins. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going to go take my daughter to that. (laughs) And then I'm leaving work on Friday, totally forgot everything to do with Francis Ford Coppola. And Chris, sitting over in his cubicle, lowers his headphones, and he says, so see you Sunday? And in that one crushing, sinking moment... I realized, oh, fuck. Yeah. And then I also realized, double fuck, there's no way I'm not going to the Penguins movie. Yeah. Because in terms of disappointing Chris, who's presumably a grown man and can handle disappointment and disappointing a seven-year-old girl for whom not going to see (laughs) Disney Nature's Penguin documentary (laughs) would be an actual traumatic experience, I said to Chris, no, 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 you go. And I did. And boy, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. They wrote articles about how awesome it was. Yeah, it was Love It was it. awesome. Well, it, le- you it was listen- long, though. I mean, I would have had to devote five or six hours of my day. That's true. They a lot. Well, part of what prompted the rave was, one, this final cut, which, you know, he even said, he was like, <laughs> yeah, the original cut was too short. And then I did the Redux, which was too way too long. long. <laughs> so this one is, is about right. But it's actually going to get a release. It's already yes. been slated for a release I August 15th in theaters, and then it'll be released on a 4K Ultra HD combo pack. Please tell me with the conversation from the Tribeca Film Festival included as a DVD extra and uh, make it all okay, Chris. Sh- not with confidence. Were there cameras there? I was hoping they maybe they filmed Robert it. Duvall. Was, they might well have. Why would they not? Yes, you did mention that Robert Duvall was there. I right, just want to make sure. So the interview really was great, but my favorite part about it was when he was asked about Marlon Brando mm-hmm. and being pushed toward like, can you tell us some anecdotes about what a crazy jerk sure. Marlon Brando was? He's not going to do that. And not only was he not going to do that, but he also didn't like beg off or anything like that. What he did talk about, he fully acknowledged the eccentricities. Mm-hmm. We all know about how much he has to be paid. And we've, we've sure. discussed in this podcast before about how lazy the yes. man is in some yes. ways. But what was really interesting was to hear him as a filmmaker who at the time was quite young and taking big risks in mm-hmm. order to make this movie. The common ground he was finding with Marlon Brando over the sensitivity that mm-hmm. Brando as a performer was feeling, which was akin to the risks he sure. was taking. And the kindness and generosity that he had in telling those stories made me respect him all the more, especially when dealing with a film like this, where he really was putting himself there. And he made a big point in the discussion to talk about like, you know, if you want to do anything mm-hmm. worthwhile, my words, not mm-hmm. his, you got to take a risk. And that's always going yeah. to be there. This acknowledgement of a kindred spirit that can be difficult, 
and cost him millions <laughs> in the case of Marlon Brando. And yet he found things in the discussions that they would have that he did end up using that did help him make the movie the movie that it ended up becoming. So I really appreciated his sensitivity and intelligence in uh, in answering that. But he was also getting Brando, like he wasn't getting Isle of Dr. Moreau Brando. <laughs> like, it's true too. I, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, you know, film directing or producing or doing whatever is all about control and being in control or, or the illusion more than it is being in control. You could imagine there's a certain artistic freedom to really be in the moment enough to say to yourself, hey, this is Marlon Brando and this is what his process is. I'm just going to trust that if I allow that to happen, I will capture something that serves what I'm doing, even if I didn't think of it myself. Yeah. And in that case, it worked. But on the other hand, he's the one who's still alive. He could have Oh, and Soderbergh too, you know, would have wanted to hear that. I mean, Soderbergh's definitely a shit stirrer. (laughs) He would tell and want to hear the scoop. Yeah. Especially if it wasn't filmed. Like, come on. You're all on your honor. Any of you who's making a podcast, don't tell this story. Why does Brando still have this fucking thing? It's so, it's because of the talent. And it's the throwing away of that same talent. I went down a Brando wormhole a few years back. I read a bunch of Brando books. One of the most depressing showbiz journeys. It's a monument to nothingness. Yeah. For a few movie roles, this destruction was wrought not only in this individual, but in almost everybody who came into contact with him or was related to him. It just was a really gross version of fame and how it fucked with someone who was so preternaturally talented. Yeah. He was all that. And then he was all the destructive mess too. Yeah. Let's see what else you got. I do have a short rant. I know you're not a Game of Thrones watcher. Never saw it. I watch it. I like it. It's beautifully shot. It's amazing how much money can get thrown at and it looks great. Okay. My rant is about, there was a coffee cup that had been seen in the the episode. I love stuff like that. Like my two favorite possessions are misprints. I was in a play that didn't win the Tony for best play, but the New York Times accidentally ran an ad that said it did. Got to have that that framed on the wall. Same thing. As a temp, I was named temp of the month, but in the form (laughs) letter that gave me my bonus and stuff, whoever was changing the form letter forgot. And so it says like, and so congratulations, Gordon, for all your (laughs) (laughs) two two prize possessions. But I have to admit, I am uh, really saddened by the reaction to the coffee cup in the thing. Mm -hmm. The amount of anger and vitriol and humorlessness that the Game of Thrones fans are just like, this one imperfection, this thing sucks and is ready to throw the whole thing away, which is just so indicative of, I guess, fandom in general. Well, what I thought was annoying, I saw today, the amount of free advertising imprints that Starbucks garnered by, by the way, being mistakenly identified. It's not a Starbucks cup, but Starbucks reaped all the benefit of the free advertising on social media. The last thing a huge corporation needs is just more of the, yeah. And then there's like this coffee shop in Ireland that probably could use the publicity. Yeah. And instead, Starbucks gets it all. Man, society sucks, Chris. I think that's painting with a little bit of a broad brush, which is I guess what I thought the problem with the fandom was that they were like, ah, this one imperfection, I can no longer trust or believe this story about dragons. Well, speaking of everything sucking, Chris, I had this in headlines, but I'll do it as a rave. Sure. There was an article in this online site is called Quartzy, but (laughs) that's what it's called. I don't know what that is. Quartzy. You know. That's not like a newsletter about no, watches? No, it's some <laughs> kind of pop watches? culture site of something. I don't know. But anyway, Quartzy, to its credit, posted an article today that says the age of the Instagram influencer has peaked. It's time for slackers to rise again. Oh, finally. They just did another panel at the Tribeca Film Festival where you saw Apocalypse Now. Which was awesome. About reality bites. And the whole cast was there. Um 
And this article, the author says, just remember, in the 90s, Winona chose the disillusioned loser musician over the wealthy TV executive. Yeah. That was cool. You know, selling out, man. That was the worst thing you could do in the early 90s. Well, apparently we're going back to that. Slackers are back. Do less. It's not about getting sponsored on Instagram. Lord knows people try to sponsor us and we turn them down. Yes, because you I, know what, Chris? I said it before. I'll say it again. We are not a part of the podcast industrial complex and we never will be. Every ad you hear on this podcast is something we made ourselves. We don't pay ourselves to run our own ads. That's how pure we are. <laughs> so we are on the cutting edge of the leading edge, the bleeding edge, whatever you want to call it. We're going back to when you didn't do anything. And that was cool. That's right. We're going so far forward that we're actually yep. behind you now. That's right. Yeah. Aha. I was going to go on a whole rant, but it's going to be weeks by the time this comes out. And I'm, I'm infuriated by it now. A week from tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I mean, again, this is probably the problem with 2019. That's that no one will even be talking about anything. <laughs> the coffee cup, that's done as of today. Yeah. The Met Gala was last night. <sighs> For the 99% of people who have better things to do with their lives than know what that is, I'll give a brief description. It's a massive costume dress-up show for the Instagram set to raise money for the incredibly important social cause of the Metropolitan Museum of Art being able to buy more costumes for something called the Costume Institute, which tracks the history of fashion and costuming in society. In other words, a completely useless, worthless cause when there are so many other more worthy causes. Now, I'm not the guy, Chris, to sit here and tell you you can't have a little fun, that you can't put on your dress and your makeup and your high heels and go make an ass of yourself on the steps of the museum. Thank you. However, it's a bad look. Katy Perry's dressed up as a fucking cheeseburger and Celine Dion is grabbing on it. It's just weird. Celebrity culture, Chris, I'm done with it. Yeah. I'm glad slackers are back. Yes. Finally. Can you imagine Ethan Hawke showing up at this thing and in, in uh, whatever that movie was? Reality Bites? Yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, this is Look, bullshit, man. I'll tell you what. Before sunrise, Ethan Hawke would never go to that. <laughs> After sunset or whatever uh, the third one. That one. Responsibilities. <laughs> it's good for the career. I do have a rave. I have two raves. One, I went to the movie Saturday night. I saw Longshot, Seth Rogen, Charlie's Throne. Yeah. And it's funny. It's not believable in any way. However, and there were two incredible scene stealers in this movie, which I love. And these two actors, O'Shea Jackson Jr., Ice Cube's son. Oh, right. Fucking hilarious and steals every scene he's in with Seth Rogen, which is not easy to do. Right. Seth Rogen's very funny. And June Diane Raphael. Oh, my God. Who is that? Did you, and forgive me if I've already asked this, because this comes up, Burning Love. Did you oh, ever yes. see this? Soundtrack? She was the Bachelorette, I guess, oh, in the second season. okay. Uh, God, that yes, was a good show. That was the first thing that I had seen her recognize, and I thought she was amazing. Yes, she's a lover. She's and wonderful. she steals every scene she's in, hands down, the entire way through, has a really hilarious character arc. And then the next day, I saw another film that I want to shout out. Missing Link, which is in stop-motion animation film by Leica Studios, yes. who made Coraline. Missing Link is their latest film, which kind of just, it's missing. It just went, <laughs> it's a missing link. No one saw it. It's, again, this product of there's so much content that good stuff slips through the cracks. Right. If you have kids, if you don't have kids, if you like creativity and imagination and positivity and laughing and great vocal work by Hugh Jackman, Zach Gefilinakis, tons of great 
vocal performances uh-huh. and brilliant stop motion animation with what my friend Jason, who is in the special effects industry, told me is this specific way that Leica does the mouths. If you've seen Coraline or you see this, it's stop motion animation, but the mouths move specifically to the words in such a way that you can't quite figure out how they're doing it. They 3D print thousands of the mouths to correspond with the words as they know they're going to yeah. be visualized. Wow. That's how they do it. That sounds lovely. Thank you, Chris. I would like to see it because I love stop motion. And it's playing in one theater in New York. And this is a testament to our filmic devotion. We live downtown. And if you live downtown, you don't go uptown. No. So it was playing in a theater on the Upper East Side, one theater, 86th Street and Lex or something. So we had to go from all the way downtown west, all the way up and east. And it was like an adventure. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it almost made up for missing Soderbergh talking to Francis Ford Coppola. That was so good. That was so good. Anyway, would you like to move on to headlines? Yes. Headlines. Chris, I posted this on Facebook, um, and I'm uh, this is making me laugh. And this, the the terrible idea that some investors had that basically Showbiz 101. Hey, Hamilton worked. What else could oh. we bring back to Broadway <laughs> that might make us a gajillion dollars? Let's yes. dust off the musical. That's right. That's no one wanted to ever see the first time around and do it again. And I know you're going to be a big fan of 1776, <laughs> the musical. I mean, I oh, my God. I did see the movie of it once, but I was like, <laughs> but also this is not quite as crass as it like. It is. It Chris. is a respected. No, it's not. People, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not respected. Yes, people do okay. love that musical. Thank you. Thank you for teeing me up. It's a masterpiece, I say. They will cheer every word, every letter. I wish I felt that way. I believe I can put it better. Now then, attend as friend to friend our declaration committee. For us, I see immortality in Philadelphia City. A farmer, a lawyer, and a sage. A bit gouty in the leg. You know, it's quite bizarre to think that here we are, playing midwives to an egg. Egg? What egg? If you're ever striking a bell note to underscore freedom and liberty in a stage show, you are a cheese ball. With all due respect, it was also ironically because he called himself a sage. That was what it was buttoning that joke. Oh, I see. So it was more clever than I'm giving it credit. Why are they doing this? The musical 1776 is about the Continental Congress and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Yes. I mean, come on. It's 1776. It's a crusty old musical that won the Tony Award for Best Musical in, what, 1969? Well, what did they know then? I just don't think we need it, Chris. That's what I'm saying. Not to quote King Lear again, but reason not the need. (laughs) Well, but isn't that how we got into this mess in the first place? Which mess? I mean, there's, the mess. there's so many messes overlapping. Now, Chris, I didn't prepare for our last segment. I mean, I do have a shipment of 15 new 1980s TV <laughs> guides on my shelf, but I didn't look at one yet. Let's do a call. Okay. Hmm, what's on TV? These are shrink-wrapped, you can hear. See this? These have not been unwrapped since the 80s. And on the first one, we have Tony Danza. I'm going to say that I'm home after school Wednesday, and it's 2.30. If I'm honest, I'm probably watching Body Electric Exercise Show. 
because you know I'm a young teenage male from school. I was you're pre-teen. home alone. I'm home alone, <laughs> preteen, and then I might switch over to business of management. Probably <laughs> sixty minute special. Oh, no, were you brought up Catholic? <laughs> then at three p.m. We've got either Scooby-Doo, that's probably what I would go to. Although HBO, which this is, this is HBO in 1987. Yeah, pre-Sopranos. Uh, pre-Sopranos. They did have a cartoon called Seabert, which I'm unfamiliar with, in which Tommy and Aura are captured by poachers. And they do have Flying Nun, Kickboxing, 87, man. You start, this is starting, it's starting to get dark in America, yeah. you know? Spartacus, like it's, there's a lot of stuff. Um, okay, then at 3.30... GED. I'm definitely watching that, ironically, on public television. GED instruction, how to get your high school diploma. I would probably, like, check that out. I don't want to actually listen in class. I'd rather do this. Oh, so it's 87. So by 87, we do have Gerald cable boxes with the buttons. Uh Uh-huh. It is wired to the cable thing. You know, you have to sit within the distance of the cord. It's a remote, but it's You can change the channels so you don't have to get up which is a different thing. And then again, I think, Chris, that is the beginning. When that when that started, that's how we ended up here. Listen, I, I would go back even to like the wheel. Four o'clock, I am definitely 100% watching 321 Contact. That was a big part of my childhood yeah. TV watching. The study of alternative ways of producing electricity and visits Ooh. to power plants. 4.30, tough choice between Three's Company and Benson. Probably going to go Three's Company because it's a little broader than Benson. What are the descriptions of the episode? Janet and Furley think Jack's masking something more serious when he says he's going to the hospital for, quote, a little minor surgery. Benson, under medication, the governor hands the reins of office to his ambitious lieutenant. Is that, um... René Aubergeois? <laughs> right? Is he the ambitious lieutenant? Uh, yes. That sounds like is. it would be him. Yes. Power mad. Sounds like he goes power mad. Oh, I'll... Uh, you would In go there? Heartbeat. Yeah, absolutely. You'd go Benson. The, yeah, the little operation thing, I don't know, maybe doesn't sound quite as exciting as, as seeing Aubergine This could be late Three's Company, so I'm not sure if we get real Chrissy or is this like fake oh, Chrissy. Oh, yeah. It, I think it's- <laughs> Chrissy Mark IV. I think this is fake Chrissy. Yeah. 5 p.m., this is a tough one for me personally because I love both of the- My, my eye goes immediately to two things. Number one, MASH. Mm-hmm. And number two, Quincy. Big Quincy fan. Yeah? This is MASH. Cupid's Arrow Misfire. Charles falls for a Korean bar girl, and Klinger flips for a classy nurse. That's an episode. Or Quincy, a confused diagnosis involves Quincy with government bureaucracy. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds riveting. I love that era of like bad dramas. Like, right. There's something saying, about like, that. That seems to me sort of like related to Columbo. Like, I mean, I know part of what you love about Columbo has to do with the guest stars and all of that. But right, but it's a similar kind of procedural... Hour-long drama, yes, no, am I? (laughs) I can't tell if this is. Columbo is not as to Quincy, okay? Quincy is an average, run-of-the-mill, 60-minute procedure. Pseudo-crime drama involving a medical examiner. Yeah. Columbo is a genius piece of television filmic history wrought large in front of your very eyes, Ah. spanning almost 40 years. One of the most iconic characters ever to appear in film or television. Sorry, you're right. You know what? I'm glad you mentioned that because this is a new segment that's not a segment. We don't have to make additional time (laughs) for it. But as we go forward and when we tape tomorrow's episode, it's going to come up. Matt, what I want to do is I have to think of some way to tip Matt off so that he can insert what I'm about to talk about. You know what Columbo's famous catchphrase is, right? Uh, like, uh, another question or something like that. <laughs> 
Oh, just one more thing. Yes, just one more thing. Yeah. So I want Matt to cut in actual Columbo saying, oh, just one more thing. Because every movie we ever do has a connection to Columbo. Okay? Yes. And when that happens, I want Matt to play that, and then I will explain the connection. I think okay? that's awesome. Columbo's Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. So I'm going to go Quincy, not because it's just like Columbo. I- <laughs> My God. Hello. Okay, 5.30. I hate to say, I might watch Entertainment Tonight. I'm just being honest, because that, that was a thing then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to say that I would watch the great TV auction, seven hours, starting at five o'clock on Channel 10. The 16th annual auction begins. Items up for bid tonight include pewter goblets, a cordless telephone, a bathroom sink, and an oriental rug. Seven hours, Chris. It's hard not to watch that. It is seven hours. You can dip in, dip out. Anyway, those are a few. I'm not going to go through more. I'm just going to give you a few. Those were some highlights. Oh, that's great. Let me see if there's a funny late movie. Daughter of the Jungle. Great title. Crime and Punishment USA. (laughs) Please say that's like a updating of the (laughs) Dostoevsky novel to like Cleveland. A poor student, George Hamilton, kills a pawnbroker and is unable to live with his conscience. Dostoevsky's classic novel set in Southern California. Wow. Imaginatively filmed. Black and white, 1959. Oh, that sounds awesome. Crime and Punishment, USA. Listen, Keanu does Hamlet. Hamilton (laughs) does Dostoevsky. Hamilton does anything. Uh, (laughs) All right. That's some uh, TV guide. As you can see, Chris, I have an entire stack here of TV guide. So your favorite segment won't be going anywhere soon. No. Are you playing us out again? Elaine May, still alive, still performing, hasn't directed another movie since Ishtar. And whatever your opinion of the movie, the world was robbed of a distinct female comedic voice and is the poorer for it. So you can't blame me for looking up at the Hollywood sign and yelling, You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.